When it comes to family vacations, there are a million different trips you can take. You can get your own... trip to Texas. Or if you prefer a vacation from your family, you can always get your own leave the kids with grandma. Yay! Trip to Texas. So go to traveltexas.com/getyourown for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. a different tomorrow with Norwegian Cruise Line. Book today and get 50% off your cruise to Alaska, Europe, and beyond. Plus, everyone can enjoy their vacation with free unlimited open bar, free specialty dining, and more. Visit ncl.com, call your travel advisor, or 1-888-NCL-CRUISE. Offer ends soon. Norwegian Cruise Line, ships registry the Bahamas and USA. Restrictions apply. The rest of my life gonna start today. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. As you move through time, you exist as a present self who makes decisions, an in-between self who should carry out those decisions, and a future self who will benefit from those decisions. Yet as we all know, in-between self often fails to follow through on what present self resolves, leaving future self pretty bummed out. The solution to this dilemma, my guest says, is for your present self to become much better friends with your future self. His name is Hal Hirschfield. And he's a professor of marketing, behavioral decision-making, and psychology, and the author of Your Future Self. Hal and I spend the first part of our conversation taking a really interesting philosophical dive into what the self even is. We talk about why our future self can feel like a stranger, why it's hard to know what he'll be like, and what this dilemma has to do with becoming a vampire. We then discuss how building a stronger connection with your future self makes your present self more willing to help him, and how you can become closer to your future self by engaging in mental time traveling. Hal shares a couple techniques that can facilitate this mental time travel, three mistakes people make in taking this cognitive trip, how to start making tomorrow better today. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash future self. All right, Hal Hirschfield, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much, Brad. I'm, I'm happy to be here. So you are a professor of marketing and behavioral decision-making, and you've spent your career studying how we think about our future selves and this idea of mental time travel. What led you down this research path? Yeah, I mean, I, I know a lot of that sounds like a lot of words thrown together there, but you know, my PhD is in psychology, in experimental psychology. And what that means is I like to study how people think about their world, how they make decisions, and honestly, while I was in grad school, it was around the time of the 2008 financial crisis, and I started to get really interested in why are people having a hard time making the same decisions that they say that they want to make? And that led me to start thinking about, you know, maybe it's not necessarily elements of the decision itself, but elements of the way that people think about themselves sort of unfolding through time. And it, it was really that seed that got planted that led me to study these things. And I'm at a business school in a way because that lets me focus on sort of applied questions. Okay. So you're interested in, in looking at why we might say something like, Hey, I want to do this to lose weight or, Hey, I want to make this investing decision. So I'll be better off in the future, but then we don't do that. 
Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, I don't start with the assumption that, you know, more people should be doing X, Y, and Z thing, you know, more people should save more or eat healthier or whatever, you know, that may be true, but it's the place where I start is, you know, if someone says, man, I really want to be exercising more and I just can't seem to do it. I really want to be saving more and I just can't seem to do it or whatever that thing is, you know, off my phone, that gap between intentions and behavior, that's where I really get interested. And that's where I like to study behavior. And this is where this idea of mental time travel comes from. When we are making goals, we are having to think about ourselves as, you know, present self and future self. Yeah, exactly. You know, when we are sort of thinking ahead and thinking about what some ideal outcome is, we are really thinking about ourselves right now. And we're thinking about that eventual version of us, like who will be sort of the, you know, almost ideal version, if you will, that, you know, exists at some later point in time. Gotcha. So before we dig into your research about mental time travel and our future selves, I think we have to get philosophical first and talk about what a (laughs) self even is. And I think most of us think we know what a self is, you know, our selves feel continuous and permanent and singular, but you make the case that the self might not be as continuous as it seems. So what is the self? Yeah, I mean, I I think you're right. I think there's a lot of us that probably would say, you know, yeah, I am me, like I've kind of been me and sure some things have changed over time, but I am essentially the same person. But then you start thinking about it and it becomes really complicated, right? It's like your name might have changed, you know, the way you look might change, like your friends might change, your interests might change, even your personality might change a little bit. And then when you start sort of like stepping back and figuring out like, who am I over time, it becomes really hard to say like, I am one person. And so the sort of philosophical notion that I really subscribe to is that maybe a better way to describe it is that we're sort of a collection of separate selves. Now, I mean, you asked this great question, which is like, well, what is the self even, you know, and I think of the self and I think psychologists think of the self as a kind of a bundle of things. It's, it's different attributes. It's my preferences and emotions and feelings and my connections and my, you know, quote unquote identity, all of those things in kind of a swirl, but all those things change over time. And so it really does seem like a more apt description to say that we're sort of a series of almost separate selves. Yeah, this goes back all the way to ancient Greece. There's that idea of the the ship of Theseus. Exactly. Where, yeah, it's yeah. like this famous ship, and then they sort of made it like a, a memorial. But over the years, they had to keep replacing the parts because it was wearing down. And at some point, the philosophers are asking, well, is it still the ship of Theseus? And people are like, well, yeah, it is. And it's like, well, it's completely just new parts. And, you know, psychologists and philosophers have applied this to humans. Yeah. Human beings were constantly creating new cells. Our cells are being replaced. So you can say, well, is is our self the body? Because if that's the case, then our body's changed. So maybe we're not the same. And they're like, well, if it's not the body, then they've said, well, maybe it's our memories. But that gets tricky too, because we've had a podcast guest talking about how our our memories can change based on um, experiences we have in the present. So we might experience something now that change how we think about the past. And I was like, well, maybe it's not our memories. Right. And it's, and I mean, the, the memory explanation, by the way, is it's really interesting because I think it's, it's on the surface intriguing. You say, well, maybe the self is this sort of collection of what I remember. And then, you know, you stop for a second, you say, you know, do you remember what you had for lunch two days ago? Like, no, well, is that not you? (laughs) And as you said, memory is, 
is it's fallible and it's constructed and it changes. So that doesn't really seem quite right. And then, so, you know, my wife, I think of myself as myself and it hasn't, I mean, I know I've changed, but I still think of like, I'm this, I've, I'm Brett, I've existed since I was, you know, since 1982. But I'm thinking about my <laughs> wife, like my wife fell in love and married 22 year old Brett. And I think, I think she still thinks she's married to the same Brett. So what is it about me when she interacts with me? And I, but she knows that I've changed over the years. What makes her think I'm the same, even though I've changed over the years? Yeah, I love this question because it, it really becomes almost existential on some level. You know, we want permanence to some degree, right? Like we want to see our partners and our best friends. And I mean, to some extent, even our parents as occupying these sort of, you know, stable conceptions of a person. But, you know, I think when push comes to shove, I'm sure your wife could point to many things about you that have changed. Now, my way of sort of reading this really has been influenced by psychologist Nina Strominger. And she has this fascinating research that suggests that when we look at other people, the way that we think of them as being, you know, quote unquote, stable over time, what, what we think about really is what she and her collaborators call the essential moral self or essential moral traits. The idea here is that, I don't know, Brett, you know, maybe you're like a little bit sarcastic, but ultimately kind, whatever, whatever the sort of like blend of those kind of like core aspects of your personality are. If the surface level things change, but those remain relatively constant. That allows somebody to say, okay, you are, you are still Brett. That's the essence of Brett, right? And I, my bet, not, <laughs> not knowing your wife, but my bet would be that she could point to those things and say, that's the same now as it was when he was 22. Okay. So yeah, or there's some moral qualities. So kindness, compassion, whether you're polite. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And that research about that made me laugh out loud. Nina, she asked this guy, what are some of the ways your wife could change? And you would say, she's no longer the person I married. And then he, the guy responded quickly, hmm, I guess she became a bitch. <laughs> exactly. It, it's, it's kind of funny because part of that conversation she asked, you know, what about you? What would change in you to make your wife say that you're no longer the person she married? And the person Nina was talking to was an artist who said, well, I guess if I suddenly became bad at art. And it's, it's funny because there's this little asymmetry there. When we think about ourselves, we think, I don't know, it, it must be these sort of things I do. But when we think about others, it's, it's not what they do. It's who they are really deep inside that sort of core, right? And if you're kind all your life and then suddenly became this monster, it'd be like, that's not the same person. Okay. So the takeaway from all this thing, like what is a self, it helps us understand there is something there that we, that helps us think of ourselves as a continuous permanent self and allows others to think of us as continuous and permanent. However, there are things about ourselves that means that we have multiple selves. There's a past self. We might even be different selves in different situations. I think people right. might have experienced that when – I know I've experienced that when I connect with old high school friends. Yes. I immediately fall into you know, 1999, 2000 Brett, and yeah. I'm making jokes <laughs> yep. that my wife 
like what's going on? I don't understand. Like you're kind of, I don't, I've never seen this Brett before. It's because I have this groove with those friends. Yep. So the self can be situational too. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally relate to that particular experience. I remember going back from my uh, 20th high school reunion, you know, with my wife and we're sitting around and it's like instantly like 1997 Hal showed up. And, <laughs> and, and it is, you know, there's elements there that, that sort of cross over, but there's also elements where you say, I'm not really that same bundle, you know, now that I was then. Okay, so let's talk about this mental time travel component. So thanks to our memories, maybe keeping a journal or looking back on old social media posts, we can have a pretty good idea of what our past self was like. Again, our present self can modify that, right? We might, we do this thing where we, I know I've done this too, and I've seen other people where we try to explain the past in a way that helps us make sense of the present, even though you're kind of doing some mental gymnastics to make that make sense. But we can have an idea of what our past self was like because we have documentation or maybe just memory. But you argue that it's really hard to know what our future self will be like. Why is that? Yeah. So part of the issue here is that our future selves are sort of inherently uncertain. And our future selves change as as we go through changes and in ways that we can't fully anticipate. And then you have this mental exercise that a philosopher came up with about thinking about becoming a vampire. Yeah, um, yeah. What can thinking about becoming a vampire teach us about how hard it is to know our future selves? So yeah, th this is L.A. Paul, and she had this great analogy, which was essentially, you know, imagine you have this opportunity to become a vampire, and you know, she says, all your friends are doing it and they tell you it's great. You're going to love it. Like they, they think they know you. They say, you know, you like staying up late at night and like trying exotic foods. And that's what it's like to become a vampire. But there's this catch, which is that once you become a vampire, you can't undo it. You're sort of always a vampire. And you can't really know what it's like to become a vampire until you become a vampire. Now, I mean, it sounds a little bit sort of ludicrous and almost sci-fi in a cheesy way. But when I first heard her talk about this, for what it's worth, I was at a little small conference and we had found out my wife was pregnant like only days before. And I'm sitting there listening to her, L.A. Paul, talk about this, you know, vampire problem. And I started instantly going down this sort of like anxiety spiral of, you know, oh my God, this is kind of the same thing as becoming a parent, right? You know, my friends are telling me it's it's like meaningful and I'll like it, but I can't know what it's like until I'm actually doing it. And like, as I'm having this sort of spiral of anxiety, the professor, L.A. Paul says, of course, this is just a thinly veiled analogy to becoming a parent. <laughs> and I was like, ah, yes, this makes sense. But I thought it was so interesting because it really highlights the sort of, you know, inherent unknowability of our future selves that, you know, we go through these changes in our lives. We become parents, we move, we change careers, we get married or divorced or any of these things. And those things change us in ways that we can't anticipate. And once we do them, we're sort of now a slightly new and different version of ourselves. Right. Becoming a parent not only changes, I mean, it changes how you think about other parts of yourself, how you think about your career how you think about your hobbies, how you think about vacation. And so it, it is It is hard. You can talk to people about what it's like to be a parent. And as you said, you can kind of get an idea, but you don't really know 
how it's going to change you and also change other decisions that you will make until you actually do it. I've noticed that with my own life. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so true. Okay. So we have these different cells. We have a past self that we can have a rough idea of what we are like. We have a present self. Then we have our future self, which we, it's, we, it's hard to know what our future self will like or want or need. So what you've done with your research is you've actually, you've stuck people in MRI machines to see what happens in their brains when they think about their future cells. So when you stick someone in MRI and they, you ask them, like, hey, think about what you'll be like when you're 70, what happens? What's going on in our brains? How do we perceive our future selves? Right. So one of the things we know from what's called social neuroscience is that the brain can essentially distinguish between me and you know somebody else. There's a certain pattern of activity that you see in what's called the cortical midline structures when I think about me, and you see less of that activity when I think of a stranger, somebody else. And so, you know, we put people in the scanner and we had them think about themselves now and themselves in the future and another person now and another person in the future. And what we find is if you look within those same regions, the regions that can kind of distinguish between me and somebody else, what you see is a similar pattern for when we think about our future selves. If I can put it more simply, the brain activity that comes about when we think of our future selves, it looks more like the brain activity that comes about when we think about other people in general, which is really fascinating because it suggests that in some ways our future selves look like other people. Well, one something you found too, and you, you've talked about is, okay, when we think about other people, depending on how close they are to us, there's like an activity that's different. So we think about someone like a stranger differently than we think about our kids or our spouse. That's right. Other work has found that those self-other differences in the brain, they're like exacerbated when I think about, you know, someone I don't know, but they're muted. The differences are a lot smaller when I think about, say, my spouse or my kid or my parent, somebody who I'm really close to, right? And so it suggests that not only is the brain coding for what's me and what's not me, it's also coding for sort of closeness and similarity and connection as well. So when someone's close to us, like a spouse or a kid, we actually, I mean, in a way we incorporate them into ourself, like they're part of us, our identity. Yeah. You know, researchers have called this the, you know, psychologists always have higher, higher level terms for things than we need to, but they, they call it the inclusion of the other in the self. <laughs> it's basically saying, you know, the people we love become a part of us. And then how we think of people, other people, affects what we'll do for them. So because we think of our family members, spouse, maybe close friends as part of us, part of ourselves, we're more willing to do things for them because in effect, we're doing something for ourselves. But then for strangers, we're less willing to go out on a limb because they're not part of our self. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, it's it's funny. You don't have to think too hard about this, right? I mean, to to really get it, you know, it's like if your kid or your best friend or, you know, someone you're really close to is like, hey, man, can you help me this weekend? We're in a bind and I really need somebody to help me like move all this stuff out of my garage so that we can do whatever, you know, you would probably be like a little annoyed because you have plans this weekend, but you would like, I don't know if they're really close to you, you'd probably figure out like, yeah, let me see how I can help you. And if, you know, somebody on the street stopped you and asked you the same question. It's like, it's not that you're selfish, but of course you'd be like, I can't, you know, I've got other things going on. You know, the, the reason that that is sort of interesting, I think, is 
if we think our future selves are kind of like those people that we don't know, well, now all of a sudden it makes sense why I wouldn't do things for their benefit. You know, if (laughs) if I'm supposed to eat healthy, you know, for that guy's cholesterol levels and that guy's, you know, waistline, well, I don't know. I think I'd kind of rather just do the thing that satisfies me right now because <laughs> who's who? who is that guy anyway? I don't know him. Okay. So yeah, this idea of the closeness of a person determines what we're willing to do for them. We can apply this to how we think about our future self. So the more distant or disconnected we feel from our future self, the less likely we'll be willing to do things for our future selves like exercise or save money or things like that. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think, doesn't Jerry Seinfeld have a bit about that? <laughs> yeah, yes, he does. He He's like, man, like he's always ahead of the curve. And like, I think he is deeply philosophical. And he has this whole bit where he says, you know, I stay up late at night because I'm night guy. You know, what about getting up after five hours sleep? Like, that's not my problem. That's morning guy's problem. You know, and he has this great sort of solution. He says, like, the only thing morning guy can do is to try to oversleep off enough so that day guy loses his job and then night guy has no money to go out anymore, which is like a perfect, (laughs) a perfect solution. But it's, I mean, I feel like it's a really deep joke because it suggests that there can be these real lack of emotional connections between selves and that lack of connection or presence of it can dictate the things that we do. In his case, you know, staying up too late, right? In my case, it might be snacking, you know, at night or having like an extra glass of wine when I said I wasn't going to. And what you've done with your research is you looked at the, the distance of how we think about our future selves. And you're saying, okay, well, if we think of our distant future selves as basically strangers, right? And because of that, we're not willing to do much for them in the future. Your hunch was, well, are there things we can do to strengthen our connection to our future selves to improve outcomes like in health, money, and psychological well-being? So what is, what is your research found on this? Can you strengthen your connection to your future self? And if so, what are the things that you can do to do that? Absolutely. So yeah, first off, you're right. The sort of degree of connection matters for these types of behaviors that you've been talking about. And then you have this question of like, can you strengthen that relationship? And, you know, the short answer is yes. The long answer is that there's a lot of different ways to do it. And they work with sort of like varying degrees of success. One that works nicely is to write a letter to and then from your future self. That's a a newer technique that Yuta Shishima and Ann Wilson came up with. And I think it's a really sort of clever exercise because it forces you to step into the shoes of your future self. Again, there, it's not that I'm just writing a letter to my future self, but then I'm turning around and then writing back to me right now. I guess what you're trying to do with that is you're trying to kind of guess what it's going to be like to be a vampire in a way. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. And, And I think, you know, I would go a step beyond what the research has done and sort of say like, yeah, I mean, it may be helpful to recognize that we can't know. Like, I I just don't know what it's like to be a vampire until I become one. And that, I think that's okay. If we can sort of get past that, then the exercise of stepping into future me's shoes will ultimately be helpful to sort of strengthen that connection between selves. And then another tactic, I think maybe people listening to this podcast have heard about this or maybe even experienced this. You've had people with virtual reality see what they would look like when they're old 
and how that affects decisions they'll make for their future self. What's going on there? Yeah, I mean, so essentially the idea here is we can use these age progression apps to show you what you look like or a version of what you look like. Now, we've, you know, used these sorts of programs and had people sort of interact with their future selves. We've done this in virtual reality. We've done this online. We've done this, you know, through emails, essentially campaigns like that. And, you know, what we find is sort of across the board, there are these effects where the people who are exposed to these images are a little bit more likely to to save or to act ethically. You know, the, the most recent version of this, we did a study with about 50,000 customers with a Mexican bank, and half of them got these opportunities to see their future selves, and half of them didn't. And the people who did were a little more likely to make a contribution to their long-term savings accounts, their retirement accounts. Now, there's a lot of this sort of thing available now. Like you can go on FaceApp or Snapchat or Aging Booth, I think. There's a lot of them. Um, just because I've seen an image of my future self doesn't mean that I'm all of a sudden going to live my life differently, right? But in the right context, if that future self image is something I look at and think about and sort of converse with while I'm then also in the mindset of making some sort of decision, you know, whether it's signing up for a nutritionist or thinking about my long-term savings or whatever it might be, that that's when I think these sorts of vivid examples and exposures can make a difference. Okay. So what you're doing with these techniques, whether it's writing a letter to your future self and having your future self write a letter to present you or looking at a aged picture of yourself, what you're trying to do is close the gap between your present self and your future self and then by doing that, we are more likely to follow through on good decisions for ourselves, whether that's exercise, saving more, not procrastinating, being just a good person, because we feel our future self is us. That is exactly right. I okay. think that's a... Well, well, actually, hold on. Let me just make a little modification there. Sure. I'm not sure that it's necessarily because it's that we feel our future self is us but rather because we now feel closer feel closer to okay. our future self and we can like better envision them right so i i do actually think you know it's like some of this i don't want to like split hairs here but it's useful to know like why these things happen i think there's some debate still about you know is it because it just simply makes that future self more vivid and therefore more emotional is it also because it's making that future self sort of feel closer to us I think at the end of the day, it's still always going to be another person. Just like, you know, at the end of the day, your wife is always going to be another person. But what can vary is, you know, how close you feel to her, right? And the closer you are, the more likely you'll probably do things that are going to help her. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a long-time podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. 
a lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made to measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code manliness to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com promo code manliness. All right. If you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the Masterclass on Negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. We do this mental time travel stuff all the time, but there's things that we do when we do this mental time travel that can make it less effective. And you talk about there's three ways we can mess up our mental time travel. And the first one is you uh, miss the flight in the first place. So how do we miss our flight? Right. So I mean, like, you know, to, to back up the mental time travel is really, like you said, it's just 
what happens when we step a, into the future or back to the past in our minds. And by the way, we're really good at this. We can do this in super sophisticated ways. I can step to the future and think back to now and step into the past. And I mean, I can do all of this in the span of, you know, seconds, back and forth, back and forth. But even though we have this sort of machinery to do this, we often aren't great at, we make these mistakes. And so, yeah, in the book, I sort of organize them into different categories. The first one, I, I call it missing our flight. I mean, this is just how I think. I think about things in analogies. Sometimes I think, you know, maybe it's easier to just describe it straightforward. But but this one works for me, which is like, I feel like everyone's had this experience of, you know, you get to the airport and you're like, oh, I've got a little time before my flight. Let me go get a drink at the bar or, you know, sit in the corner and read a book or whatever it is. Now, I've, I've never had it happen, but I've had it almost happen where you get so engrossed in the thing you're doing, that beer at the bar, you look up and you realize, oh my God, you know, they've been calling my name and I've missed my flight. <laughs> and the reason that I bring this up in the space of sort of mental time travel is it's, it's sort of like being so focused on the present that I look up and realize that I've completely missed thinking about the future in any deep way. And, you know, that we do this sort of thing all the time when we act in ways that deeply prioritize the future over the present, it's not as if we don't know the future won't come. You know, when we go to the airport, it's not as if I've just completely forgotten about the flight. It's just that it occupies such a minor place in the back of my mind and I get so engrossed in what's happening right in front of me that I act as if I've missed it entirely. Right. And, and we do that for various reasons. One is when we experience the present, the emotions that we experience or the feelings are more intense because we're actually experiencing them. And then when we think about the emotions we might feel in the future, well, it's hard to do, right? It's hard to think about what you'll feel like when you're a vampire. And so you're thinking, well, I'm enjoying this uh, late night show. This is great right now. I'm enjoying it. I'm going to keep doing this. And you don't think about, well, how is, how is tomorrow, Brett, going to feel about this? No, it's not, I'm not going to, I can't, I can't feel that. So I'm just not going to do anything about it. Exactly. And it's like, you said it, there's the uncertainty of the future. And there's also just like the feelings right now feel more intense than the things worth, you know, anticipate feeling in the book. And I like quoting her a lot, Liz Dunn, one of my collaborators. She has this great line in one of her papers. The paper is not even about this concept, but she just has this line in there and it really stuck with me, which is the present acts as a magnifying glass for our emotions. And I think it's such a smart way to think about how powerful the present is when we're talking about our feelings. Okay, so the first way we can mess up mental time traveling is we miss the flight by thinking too much about the present. Exactly. Thinking too much about what we're experiencing now and not thinking about what future self will want. Another way we can mess up our mental time traveling is what you call poor trip planning. So how do we plan our mental time travel trips poorly? Yeah, I mean, so this would be, I'm, I'm going to like just like kind of lean into the, you know, airport plane travel metaphors, but essentially this is the, you know, I've planned my trip, like I know I'm going to Chicago next week. And then I realized that I, I've, I haven't done really anything other than book the flight and maybe the hotel. And then I get there and I'm like, well, now what am I going to do? And this is, this is the version of, of mental time travel where we think a little bit about the future but we do so in such a surface level way that by the time we get to the future, it's looks maybe different than the one that we had envisioned. So, you know, as an example, I think procrastination fits perfectly into this bucket. It's like, I'm thinking ahead. I'd say to myself, next week is going to be the week that I finally take care of like 
putting in this paperwork that I've got to put in for work and blah, blah, blah. But I'm not really thinking deeply about the future because if I was, I'd realize that, you know, if I don't want to do that thing now, future me isn't going to want to do it either, you know? So it might make sense to not compound the problem and just take care of it right now. But the gist is that I'm not really deeply thinking ahead to the future. And even though I know it exists, it's not planned for in a more than surface level way. Gotcha. So you're thinking about your future self, but you're not doing it in a very deep or profound way. And as a consequence, you might make decisions that you think I'm doing something for my future self, but really it's not helping them that much. Exactly. Exactly. The one that you talked about there that really resonated with me is the uh, yes, damn effect. I think everyone's experienced (laughs) that. And this is what it's called. Like the psychologists, they call it the yes, damn effect. That's right. What is the yes, damn effect? And how does that uh, constitute poor trip planning? Yeah. It's when you get asked to do something and it's not going to occur for another two months, three months, four months, whatever it is. You look ahead at your calendar and you say, yeah, it's wide open. Yeah, sure, I'll do it. And then, you know, the time goes by and you get there and it's the week of and you realize I have, you know, agreed to do this presentation at work. I've agreed to whatever the flavor of event is. Like, I'm sure we can all conjure up our own idiosyncratic ones. And you say, damn it, I really don't feel like doing this. (laughs) And so they, you know, psychologists call it the yes, damn effect. And the issue with this is what I'm doing is I am thinking ahead to the future. I'm saying, yeah, future me will do that thing. And then I get there and realize that's not really something I'd want to do. Now, there are cases that there's nuance here, right? Because sometimes the only way to get us to sign up for something is, is to put it distant enough out in the future. And then, you know, some, there's versions of these things that we do, you know, whether it's like agreeing to coach our kids team, like maybe I don't really want to do that this week. It's a lot of work, but next, you know, next year, sure, I'll do it. And like, ultimately that could be a really good experience. And I wouldn't have signed up for it if it was occurring next week. But there's many other cases where I unfairly sign my future self up to do the very things that I don't want to do now. Right. Because you don't think about future self having issues, right? So your calendar might look open. You think future self, man, the sky's the limit for future self. He's got so much free time, but then once future self arrives, all the problems of the present are there. So you've got school that you're dropping your kids off. You've got fires to put out at work. You've got other responsibilities that your present self wasn't thinking about when you committed future self to make that decision. That's where the yes, damn effect. You're like, yeah, it sounds great. But then when future self that you thought about finally becomes present self, you're like, oh, damn, this, why did I do this? This, this stinks. Exactly. I think that's exactly right. And I I think one way you can counter that, one thing that I've done is if you're being asked to commit to something way in the future, like months or maybe a year, one way you can counter the yes, damn effect is ask yourself, if this thing was going to be tomorrow, would I still do it? And if the answer is no, then, well, maybe I don't commit to that. I mean, it's, again, there's nuance. You might not do that uh, in all situations, but it's a good way to figure out if you, you actually want to do the thing. I think that's exactly right. And it's, you know, it's, I think the beauty of that is that it's so hard to step into the shoes of our future selves, but it's easier to live in the shoes of our present self. And if present self <laughs> doesn't want to do it, it, you know, it's a good indicator that future me might want, not want to do it either. Right. So you're closing that gap between present and exactly. future self by doing that. Okay. So uh, we can mess up mental time traveling by just 
poor planning. Another one is once we're on the trip, we pack the wrong clothes. What do you mean by packing the wrong clothes for our mental time travel trip? Right. So this is like a little bit different. So, I mean, we've probably all had this experience. Imagine, you know, it's like the winter time. Uh, I'm living in a cold weather place. I'm in Chicago. We're going to, you know, go to, I don't know, Miami or something like this. And I'm thinking ahead. I'm packing my bag and I'm packing my clothes. And I say, you know, I know it's going to be warm there, but it's really hard to shake the feeling that I'm freezing right now. I should probably throw some sweaters in just in case. And you know, is it a mistake? Well, you know, if I get there and I don't have enough of the warm weather clothes and I've got all this other stuff in my suitcase that is taking up room that I'm not going to use, well, there's a little bit of a mistake there. But when you think about time travel, the gist here is that I convince myself that I'm planning ahead for the future. But in doing so, what I'm really, really doing is using my present day emotions and projecting them almost unfairly on my future self. And the reason why I say that this is really problem and really pernicious is because I've convinced myself that I'm doing something good for my future self when in reality, I may actually not be appreciating the way that he will differ from me, the way that he'll change. If, if you want another sort of example or a sort of analogy, it's like getting gifts for your spouse. You know, nobody wants to get the gift that the gift giver wanted. You know, it's like if I say to myself, what my wife really wants is that new Nintendo Switch. <laughs> it's like, no, that's what I want. You know, it's not really fair to her. In the same way as if I use my present day feelings and emotions and project them onto my future self, it's not really fair to him. Yeah. So what you're doing, you're thinking about your future self, you're trying to do some mental time traveling, but you're thinking, going back to that vampire analogy, you're thinking that being a vampire is going to be like what it's like being you now, but that's not actually what's going to happen. I really like that. I hadn't put it quite that way. And I think you're exactly right. It's like, you know, if I sort of think like, I'm sure he'll want to, you know, sleep at night and, and, and wake up early in the morning because I do. And let me arrange things for him so that that happens. It would be a mistake because it turns out once you become a vampire, that's not what you like. <laughs> and then another thing that causes us to, you know, pack the wrong clothes, it's this idea in psychology called the end of history illusion. What is that? Yeah, the end of history illusion. This is um, Jordi Quadbach is the original author on this work. The idea with this is that I think that I've somehow become the sort of fully baked version of myself now. And that moving forward into the future, I'll change a little bit, but not that much. In other words, the end of history illusion is recognizing that I've changed from the past to the present, but then failing to see that I'll continue to change moving from the present to the future. Now, the reason that that's problematic is that we do, in fact, change from the present to the future, probably as much as we've changed from the past to the present. And that, that's really hard to grapple with because we say, no, 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 that can't be. Like, I've, I've changed so much from, from then to now. I can't continue this way. And the reality is that we will, but we don't like to see that because it sort of suggests that, you know, we're more malleable than we like to think. It's also a problem when I make decisions and plans for a future self that limit his ability to change his mind, that sort of lock him into something in a way that he might not particularly like. What are some examples that you've come across where people have, have done that? So I think a good example of this is career planning. Sometimes we can get sort of locked into something or we say, this is what we want. 
because this is what I want right now. And then later on, we say, ah, I should keep doing this because, you know, past me planned it. We also see this on a smaller level of, you know, some researchers have found, you know, taking on projects. I might take on a really big project and be super excited about it in the early days and convince myself that I'll main, be able to maintain that level of effort and excitement and, you know, passion, if you will. When in reality, those things may wane and change so much so that I won't be able to see the project through to completion because I no longer have the sort of inclination or energy or will to do it. I suspect this is something that happens in the startup world quite a bit because early on, that's the most exciting period of time. But we may end up biting off more than we can chew because we sort of unfairly think that future versions of us will be able to continue to maintain the same level of sort of drive and effort and work that the early versions of us did. Okay. So when we think about our future self, we often think of them as like another person, a distant person. Um, and as a consequence, we're less likely to do things for future self because we think, well, that's another person. And then you have all these biases that cause us to do that, whether it's being too focused on the present or not thinking about correctly of what our future self will actually be like and things like that. And so there's the things you've talked about that you can sort of close the gap between future self and present mm -hmm. self, write letters to your future self and then have future self write letters to your present self or look at an aged picture of yourself. But again, you don't just look at it. It's not like a, you can just fire up TikTok and look at your, what you look like when you're <laughs> yeah. 80 and you'll suddenly start exercising and saving for retirement. Maybe you do that when you're deciding whether to start a retirement account or whether to save money. That might, might help. Besides those two things, you've also researched different commitment devices we can use so that when we think about our future self and we're like, yeah, future self wants a robust retirement account. Future self wants to be 25 pounds lighter. Present self is going to commit to that. I'm going to help future self out because future self is me. But then you also highlight there's commitment devices you can do to ensure that present self continues to do those things to help future self out. I know it's, I, we're doing a lot of mental time travel right there when I was describing <laughs> that. But so yeah, what are some commitment devices that can help ensure that we do good things for future selves once we make the commitment to help future self out. Yeah. So the gist here is right. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get it too complicated, but it's like there's this version of me right now that wants to do something well. I, I want to, you know, not snack at night. There's this future version of me that wants to look back and say, yeah, I did it right. I didn't snack at night. And then there's this guy in the middle who messes things up, right? That's the like <laughs> eventual version of me that says, I'm tired. I'm going to take a snack. I, I really, I really am hungry right now. Now, commitment devices are sort of tools that we can put into place to put guardrails on our future behavior so that we can ensure that we don't sort of fall off and mess things up. So, you know, a good example is this website stick.com. It's with two Ks. And it's fantastic because what I can do is say, hey, I've got a goal to, you know, act a certain way. I, I want to work out three days a week for 30 minutes. And then I'll sort of enlist the accountability partner, let's call it you, Brett, every week you're going to call me and say, did you do it? Did you work out three days a week? I'll also give my credit card to this site and I'll give the name of an anti-charity. That's a, like a, call it a political organization or group that I don't want to donate to. And then if I fail to live up to the goal that I said, well, you would press a button and suddenly 200 bucks 
500 bucks, 100 bucks, whatever the amount might be, is going to be taken out of my, you know, charged to my credit card and donated to whatever this disliked organization is. Now, you know, through the lens of present and future selves, the gist here is that you've got to pick punishments that are strong enough to deter the unwanted behavior, but not so strong that we don't sign up altogether and just say, no, 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 I would never do that to myself. And so one thing that keep in mind when you, you implement these commitment devices is you might realize, okay, so present self makes this decision to, let's say, write a book by the end of the year. And so you start writing and you make a commitment with sticks. Say, if I don't finish a manuscript by the end of the year, then I got to pay X amount of dollars to this anti-charity. But then in the course of writing, you discover, you know what? I don't actually enjoy writing a book. This is not what I want to do. So you might learn by staying the course for that future self that actually what you thought was your future self isn't your future self. Right, 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 right. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I think that's, okay to some degree. Yeah. Right. Because that's reality. We can plan. You know, I love the phrase man plans and God laughs. laughs. You know, it's like we can know that and I think still plan and then be flexible with our plans. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that, that might apply that like you might be able to back out of some things, but not all things Like you can't just be like, I'm going to back out from being a parent. Right. Your, your kid yeah. gets to be a teenager and you're like, yeah, I don't well, like done this. With this one. Done with this yeah. one. You can't do that. Um, yep. Or, you know, you can't do that with the, some people do with, with romantic partners. Well, you know, five years in, don't like this one, get rid of that one. So yeah, I, yeah, I think when you make uh, certain types of changes, you got to be careful about what you do because they might have very dramatic outcomes if you decide to, to jettison it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I mean, I think, yeah, you, you can't just, uh, <laughs> you can't just like suddenly make all these changes. Like there's no consequences. Right. But I think the bigger insight here is that we still have to make decisions <laughs> moving forward and also recognize that our future selves are going to change and have different preferences from us. And then, you know, idiosyncratically consider how we deal with that. Right. So the, yeah, our selves might change, but there's still a permanent part of ourself that we have to reckon with, not only with ourselves, but with other people. Like other people are depending on us to be permanent in a way. So we can't just, we can't change big things willy nilly. Like if suddenly you become this just jerk, I, you see what I'm saying here? It's like, I, I guess this, it, again, like this gets really philosophical. Like when is it okay to course correct on yourself? And when are there ethical and moral quandaries that arise when you do that. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, I think this is a really, this is a really difficult question to grapple with, you know, because this is a, almost a question for the philosophers, but I, I'm not sure that we've fully sort of, you know, delineated, like what are the spaces where it's okay to sort of make a shift? What are the other ones where we have almost like a moral or ethical responsibility to stick with the plans that our past selves made? I mean, I think also, by the way, this is exactly why big life decisions are so, you know, existentially confronting because we do probably on some level recognize that when we decide to get married or become a parent, you know, if we are fortunate enough to sort of decide that or, you know, decide to switch careers or something like that, there are implications for those choices. Yeah. And, and that's quite, that's quite difficult to sort of recognize. And yet at the same time, it's not that we just sit in a state of paralysis and do nothing. You know, eventually you make the decision 
and you do it with your sort of best guess in mind, one thing that the research suggested I think is really important to consider is to not just try to simulate our own future selves, but to talk to others who've made the same decisions as us. So you get a better idea of what it's like to be a vampire. You might not know completely, but you'll have a better idea. Exactly. Exactly. So we've been talking about how if we feel closer to our future self, we're more willing to do things for our future self that might not benefit us in the present, right? We're more willing to give up eating the cake, exercise, going to bed early, saving more instead of spending more. But you make the case that if we really want to be good time travelers and good to our future selves, sometimes it pays to indulge present self. So how can indulging present self be good for future self? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a really important question to ask because at the end of the day, the things we do in the present are what create the memories that future self can look back on and have. And, you know, if we're sort of always sacrificing for future me, what sort of present is that, right? It's like not, it's just not, life isn't going to be fun or worth living to some degree. Maybe that's extreme. And so I do think it makes sense to occasionally sort of celebrate the present, you know, to go for it, to do the thing, to, to, to pay the upgrade so that we can both enjoy now and also have experiential memories that future you can look back on with satisfaction and contentment and happiness and, and, and whatnot. You know, the issue arises when we always do the upgrade. <laughs> and then also the issue arises when we never do it, right? And so to some extent, this is all, you know, idiosyncratic, but it's kind of finding what's the right back and forth between present and future self so that both can be satisfied almost to sort of expand the pie for ourselves across time. Well, Hal, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Yeah, thanks, Brett. It's, it's been so great to talk to you. They can go to halhirschfield.com. I've got everything there. And the book, Your Future Self, How to Make Tomorrow Better Today, that's, it's available everywhere you can buy books. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Hal Hirschfield, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Thank you. My guest here is Hal Hirschfield. He's the author of the book, Your Future Self. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, halhirschfield.com. Also check out our show notes at awim.is slash future self, where you can find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a view on Apple Podcast or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay, reminding you time to listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. When you visit a state as big and diverse as Texas, there are a million different trips you can take. Let's say you've got an appetite for whitewater kayaking. You can get your own. So this is why they call it Devil's River. Trip to Texas. Or maybe you have an actual appetite. 
I'll take a pound of brisket, six ribs, uh, three links of sausage, and a, a piece of pecan pie. Trip to Texas. Go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 